more important, a quick start or a strong finish? A quick start or a strong finish. It's a difference between a commencement and a consummation. In 2 Samuel... You talk too much. What do you guys think? Well, you guys are obviously much closer to the end of the race than I am. Wait, wait a minute. I have been a runner nearly all of my life. And um, in my first marathon, I uh, practiced and practiced for a marathon one time with the that if I ran as hard as I could right out of the gate, way out in front of everybody, and they would become intimidated and quit. Race? But the problem with all of that, of course, is that I couldn't finish the race, which means that that finishing strong was not in my best interest at that point. Oh, have you excommunicated, little man? It's not complicated. A strong finish is better. For inspiration on pursuing the heart of God and faithfulness, look no further than the life of David. Well, churches have personalities, and uh, if you don't already know it, know it, folks, you are in a church that has a sense of humor. As we've been uh, enjoying it the last several weeks, the uh, tech crew's done a great job with these AT&T videos that have kind of served as sermon bumpers for us during this season together. Well, it's uh, the last day in August. I don't know how we got here, but we are here. Tomorrow is September the 1st. A lot is happening around Crossroads. Our small groups, many of them have kicked off. Our Monday night support groups have kicked off in a great way. Men's fraternity is off to a strong start. Women's Bible studies are soon to, uh, to ramp up. And it's just a busy, good time around our church. While we're doing a little housekeeping here at the outset, I want to ask you to help us during our worship services to keep our worship center very conducive to undistracted worship. The cry room across the back is a great place for parents with fussy babies to be able to go out into that area. They still have visual contact with us through the glass all across the back, and we also have the sound piped in there. But let's keep that area restricted to parents and their fussy babies, and so that area is entitled uh, is entirely for them. And uh, then speaking of babies, we have been a fertile bunch the last two or three years, folks. As a church, we uh, just have a lot of babies and a lot of preschoolers. And so right now, we are especially in need of volunteer servants in that area. So keep those things in mind, if you would, please. Well, this weekend... We conclude our summer series of messages on the life of David from First and Second Samuel, and we've been learning the reasons and we've been learning the ways to pursue the heart of God as our highest priority in every season of our lives, in every situation of our lives, whether we feel insignificant or important, whether we're in trouble or we feel alone, whether we're soaring in life or we've crashed and burned, even if we have been humbled by some personal failure or some deep disappointment, to be faithful to pursue God's heart consistently to the very end of our lives. 
through it all in life, through it all, we agree with the songwriter. Oh God, you are my God. And I will ever, ever praise you. I'll seek you in the morning and learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me. And here it is. I will follow you all of my days. This is our commitment to faithfulness. And my hope is that once again this weekend, you'll be able to relate to David as a real person. And you'll want to emulate the qualities that made David a man faithfully pursuing God's heart to the finish line in his life. Professor Robert Clinton from the Fuller Theological Seminary makes this shocking statement from his research. Two out of three Christians do not finish well. Now he's not saying that these people lost their faith. He's just saying that most of them finished life weakly. They finished life poorly. But we want to finish well. So today, let's make this our magnificent obsession, that we will finish strongly, finish well. We will pursue the heart of God faithfully. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verse 14. He said, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul wrote that, he was in the 11th hour of his life. But he doesn't sound to me like someone who's fading at the finish. And speaking of people who keep their spiritual vitality to the very end, I remember years ago holding a revival meeting for Pastor John Wilson. At the time, he was in his 80s and he was still serving First Christian Church in Canton, Ohio. We were making home visits one afternoon. And thankfully, he let me, he let me drive his vintage Chevy Monte Carlo while well, he served as kind of a human GPS, he told me where to turn, when to turn. And we rode along together that day. And as we did, he leaned forward in his bucket seat and he looked at me with eyes that sparkled and he said, Ken, I believe this is the year we're going to take our town for Christ. Now, that was impressive to me. It was a defining moment for me. I thought to myself, I want to have that kind of spirit when I reach his age. And then I remember a similar encounter at the North American Christian Convention. I was walking out of the convention hall just as veteran pastor Ben Merrill was walking in. I spoke to him as we passed, and he said to me, Well, Ken, I think I'm going to have to hang it up in three more years when I turn 80. Well, it's 11 years ago. He's 88 now, and he's still faithfully serving. You've got to love that. There's no disillusionment. In these men, no resignation, no capitulation to mediocrity, no been there, done that attitude, no evidence of passivity that often accompanies aging. According to what you read nowadays, as we age, we're destined to lose our energy, lose our vitality, or so I'm told. And I suppose there is a natural tendency as we age to slow down physically, that's understandable, but slowing down is not inevitable spiritually. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.16, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly 
we're wasting away, yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Well, this morning, I want to beat the drum for finishing strongly. I want to challenge you to plan right now to go out with your flags flying. King David did. He finished well. So let's survey the final chapters of his life, lift out the evidences of his faithfulness in pursuing the heart of God. And first we'll see that he was a faithful forgiver. In the 16th chapter of 2 Samuel, we're introduced to a man named Shammai. Now here's the story. David has fled Jerusalem. His son Absalom has usurped the throne. David is on the run. And David is in the pit of discouragement when Shammai came out of nowhere to add to his misery. To put it bluntly, this guy, he's kind of a jerk who kicks David while he's down. Take a look. 2 Samuel 16, 5, Shammai came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David. Shammai said when he cursed, get out. Get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. Behold, you're taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. And Shammai accused David of murdering Saul. Not true. Murdering Saul's family. Not true. Stealing Saul's throne. Not true. So Shammai's confrontation was based on lies. And folks, this is high-risk behavior for Shammai. He cannot be too smart. David is traveling with a military entourage. And one of David's warriors, Abishai, wanted to decapitate Shammai on the spot. But David said no. He was merciful in the face of blatant disrespect. He didn't retaliate. He remained calm. And here's what he said in 2 Samuel 16, 12. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. That's remarkable restraint on David's part. Instead of fighting back, David simply said, I'm going to depend on the Lord to vindicate me. Listen, folks, there are going to be Shemais in your life who will kick you when you're down. But if you intend to honor God in your relationships right up to the end of your life, you'd better learn how to handle them with grace. You need to decide. Am I going to be easily offended or not? Am I going to be big enough to forgive an insult? Okay, now jump ahead in the story. Time passed. Absalom was killed in battle. The people are looking to David to reestablish his leadership. David is on his way back to Jerusalem, the rightful king, returning to his throne, when Shammai reemerges. Here's what he says, 2 Samuel 19, 18. Shammai fell prostrate before the king and said, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Okay. Shammai is groveling now. He calls David king three times. He never called him king one time when he was fleeing Jerusalem. 
He calls him Lord twice. Never called him Lord once before this. Well, David's bodyguard, Abishai, suggests that Shammai be put to death once again. But Shammai's words, I have sinned. Those words were very familiar to David. Those were the words that he had spoken when he was confronted with his sin just a few years earlier. David identified with his offender. So once again, David did not retaliate, but rather he renewed his forgiveness, and we learn something in the process. We learn that forgiveness comes easier for us when we remember the times in our own past when we failed and we were forgiven. The Jesus way is that we are empowered to forgive others their sins against us because we have been forgiven by God. So being a faithful forgiver up to the end of your life is to pursue the heart of God. But I'm telling you, it can be hard. Instead of fully forgiving from the heart, some folks like to employ one of three optional responses when they are betrayed or when they are offended. Some people employ what I would call conditional forgiveness. I will forgive you if, or I will forgive you as soon as, or I will forgive you when. That's conditional forgiveness. And then some employ partial forgiveness. I forgive you, but don't expect me to forget. Or I forgive you. Now, get out of my life. I never want to see you again. Or I forgive you, but if it ever happens again, you're not going to like the consequences. That's partial forgiveness. And then there's delayed forgiveness. This is a person who says, well, I'll eventually forgive you, but I need some time. Someday, I'll follow through, but just not now. Well, in contrast to conditional forgiveness and partial forgiveness and delayed forgiveness, let me show you some practical biblical guidelines to help us be faithful forgivers to the finish. Number one, develop a thicker skin. Try not to be too sensitive, too easily offended. Be patient with those who tend to speak too quickly or too thoughtlessly. Learn to bounce back quickly from a lot of the stuff that may hit you wrong. David's maturity was evident in his willingness to overlook an offense. He had a thick skin. Good to have a thick skin, but a tender heart. Well, then also try to understand and give grace. Try to see the little boy in the man who may have lashed out at you. Try to see the little girl in the woman who may have offended you. You you never really know. You never really know what the other person is dealing with physically, emotionally, relationally spiritually. You just don't know what's going on in that person's life. Well, David made allowances for Shammai. Then another good thing to do is recall the times when you've needed forgiveness. Chances are that won't be hard if you take time to do it. So maybe you can recall 
When you were as impatient, you were as ugly, you were as reactionary, you were as ornery as the other person. I think David saw himself and his own weaknesses in the past in Shammai. Well, finally, verbalize your forgiveness. Say it. Don't just think it. Spoken words of forgiveness are therapeutic for both the forgiven person and for the forgiver as well. So saying it ensures that reconciliation has happened. Silence, indifference does not heal the relationship. Now, I understand that last weekend, in my absence, (laughs) that our evangelism pastor conspired to embarrass me by showing a particularly unflattering video. So I thought you should probably see this. You know, Ken, I was reading this morning in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. So with that being said, will you forgive me? So let me verbalize my forgiveness. (laughs) Yes, Patrick, I forgive you. (laughs) David actually verbalized his forgiveness twice. He verbalized his forgiveness once when Shammai didn't even ask for it, and then he verbalized his forgiveness a second time when Shammai asked for mercy. So David was a faithful forgiver throughout his life. And he was also a faithful worshiper. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and 23, there are a total of 58 verses. And the tone, the tone of these verses is not what you would expect from someone who had gone through what David had gone through in life. Think about it. He has lost children to death. There has been famine and disease in the land. On top of that, there had been a renewal of conflict with the Philistines on the battlefield. But in this passage, David's mood is not dark. It's not somber. David is worshiping, so he's lifted up. That's what worship does. It elevates you into the presence of God. And so even in spite of all that David has had to deal with throughout his life, he ends with this lengthy section which constitutes a song of praise. And in the content of David's worship, there are several expressions that that would help us as we praise God. Number one, he says, God is my security. He's my security. In 2 Samuel 22.2, he said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. You see, to David, God was not untouchable. He was not distant, preoccupied with the universe and the changing of the seasons. He knew God in a close way, an intimate way. And as Christians, we should be the most secure people on the planet. Second Samuel 2.20, David said, He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
And some of you came to church this morning to hear this. He, your heavenly Father, delights in you. Just as he delighted in David. And if you choose not to believe that he delights in you, it will scar you for life. But if you believe it and you respond to it, it'll save you, it'll lift you in tough times. He is our security. What else is revealed in David's worship? He says, God is my light. That's in verse 29. You are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. Figurative language, but we understand what it means. If you've ever been shrouded in complete darkness, it's a very unsettling thing. I remember in Boy Scout camp, when I was inducted into the Order of the Arrow, they took a group of 20 of us out into the woods at night and dropped us off one by one in different locations, no flashlight, nothing but a bedroll, and we were to stay alone overnight and find our way back in the morning. And we had to take a vow of silence, which meant that you couldn't call out for help. The challenge was to face your fears and overcome them. And so for me, I can remember that night, it was the fear of darkness. It was a fear of being alone. It was a fear of danger. It was a fear of the unknown. It was all there in this 12-year-old that night. And, of course, we grow up, and we have to deal with adult fears, the fear of failure, the fear of financial loss, the fear of rejection, the fear of sickness, the fear of death. But there are times in life when we feel shrouded by darkness. All these areas are areas that the Lord can light. He can illumine our darkness. He gives wisdom through His Word that lights things up. He gives us community in His family, the church, that lights things up. And He gives us the comfort of His presence. We draw near to Him. He will draw near to us. Well, David also says, God is my strength in verse 32 and 33. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength. Spoiler alert. I'm telling you there are going to be times in your life when you feel vulnerable. And the reason we sometimes feel weak is because we are all weak. While a youth pastor in Champaign, Illinois, there was a man in our church who was a self-made multimillionaire, had several businesses and employees. He was physically big and brusque and assertive and dominating and intimidating until in his late 50s, he had a stroke that took his speech and his mobility and he could not accept his weakness. He found dependence on the Lord or his family or the church family to be demeaning. And so one day, he asked his wife to go into the kitchen and fix him a plate of spaghetti. And standing at the stove, she heard the gunshot. 
Don't live your life like you are invincible. You are not. No one is. So let the Lord arm you with His strength. Well, David's worship also includes this testimony. God is my hope. David brings his worship song to a grand finale in verse 50. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David. talks about himself in the third person. To David and his descendants forever. Despite everything David had been through, he is not bitter. He is not resentful. He's not hard-hearted at the end of his life. He approached the end of his life with a song in his heart and on his lips. And I've noticed that as people age and the years start to stack up, hope becomes a whole lot more important to us. In our 50s and 60s, we begin to wonder what our 70s and 80s are going to look like. Should we live that long? So, you don't think about that in your 20s and 30s, but you do in your 50s and 60s. So, thank you, David, for leaving us a testimony of hope in some of your last words. And more than that, thank you, Lord for being there throughout our lives, never failing, always there for us with your hope for our future. But listen, folks, when it came to worship, David did not just sing and speak. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, he's moving forward to buy a piece of land, a threshing floor, and he intends to build an altar there, and he intends to offer up sacrifices as an expression of his devotion to the Lord God whom he loved and pursued throughout his life. But a well-to-do man named Araunna learned about what David had in mind, and he stepped up, and he offered to give David the land, and he offered to build the altar, and he offered to personally provide his sacrifices. Araunna said, let the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. What a deal. What a deal. But in 2 Samuel 24, 24, the king replied, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. David understood that worship is not just a matter of words, going through the motions. It's got to have personal involvement, personal surrender, personal sacrifice demonstrated in an offering, a sacrificial gift. So David is not thin-skinned about this aspect of worship. He knew that if he invested nothing in his worship but words, his worship would be hollow. It would be meaningless So David was not offended by giving offerings. He was offended by the suggestion that someone else would do it for him, that he would lose the opportunity to worship God by making a personal sacrifice. And personally, my friends, I cannot imagine why any lover of God would be sensitive about this, why any lover of God would consider making an offering to be an offensive thing. 
we need to learn from David. Don't offer to the Lord that which costs you nothing. So David pursued the heart of God right to the finish line of his life by being a faithful forgiver and a faithful worshiper and finally by being a faithful father. He was a faithful father. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave this strong spiritual charge to Solomon, his son. It's found in 1 Chronicles 28.9. He said, As for you, my son, Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. And a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Two distinct parts of David's charge to his son Solomon, who was going to succeed him on the throne of Israel. He said, number one, know God. Number two, serve God. And it seems, the first seems almost too obvious to mention But David had been king for four long, tumultuous decades. He knew about the tyranny of the urgent. He knew how easy it would be for his son as king not to take time to know God. Perhaps David also recognized in Solomon the early signs of self-indulgence and spiritual dullness, and he was concerned about that. So he looks at his son and he says, know God, know God. Then he says, serve God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, serve him wholeheartedly, serve him willingly, hold nothing back. So I want to ask you, are you escaping the tyranny of the urgent to know God? Are you making it a priority to serve God? Like David did with Solomon, if you could pull your child aside before you died and give him or her one piece of advice regarding life, what would that advice be? Maybe the better question, what are you passing on now? What's your spiritual legacy today? Will your children know, uh, grow up knowing their father and mother knew the Lord and served the Lord wholeheartedly? I'll tell you, there's no better teaching tool in the life of a child than the model of a parent's life surrendered to the Lord God. Roy Weiss, for years, was the campus minister at the University of Missouri, probably over 40 years In his uh, late 60s, he developed cancer of the tongue. He decided that the treatment was not always successful and that it was not very pleasant, and he decided that he would not seek treatment. And so he slowly ebbed away, but before he died, he got all of his children, all five of his children and their spouses and the grandchildren together in a room. And he said to them, I am going to heaven shortly. And he said, I want to make sure that you meet me there one day. And so he went around the room and asked each one of his children, each one of his grandchildren to affirm their commitment to meet him again in the greater life. And he created a memory for his family that they will never forget as he asked them one by one, to make that commitment to meet him there. Well, this is what I call finishing well, finishing strong. And the invitation this morning for our time of commitment is that you know the Lord and serve the Lord in the ministry of Crossroads. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and pray. 
and we'll enjoy a final worship song. And then this morning, if you have a decision to make, we're going to ask you just to remain seated here in the worship center, and our section hosts will come to you and counsel with you personally, pray with you after we are dismissed. Let's bow together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the example of David as someone who finished strong, finished well. And we want to be that model to others. So we pray that that would be our magnificent obsession. It would never leave us as long as we live. This commitment to finish strong, finish well, spiritually. And so we pray this morning for that person who needs to cross the line and make the decision to come to Christ initially. And we pray for every Christian in this room to finish strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.